Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. I'm delighted to share a presentation from the 2018 Integrating Clinical Research as a Care Option Conference on the following topic. How can we work with medical practices to offer patients clinical trials as a care option? This discussion is moderated by Jennifer Byrne from the Greater Gift Initiative and CEO of Javara with Dr. Judy Hung, Mass General Hospital, Jeff James, Wilmington Health, Greg Sweat, ePatient Finder, and Kurt Waldhuter from Aurora Research Institute. The 2019 Integrating Clinical Research into Clinical Care, otherwise known as CRACO, will take place April 29th and 30th at the Sheraton in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina. Enjoy the podcast. The topic of this particular um, agenda item is talking about, Jeff is on his way, how can we work with medical practice to offer potential clinical trial as a care option um, to the patients? And so in this particular case, we are really looking to understand how the medical organizations work, um, how we actually would integrate that in there. How do you get started? If you're started, how do you make it effective? And so forth. My notes are incorrect, so Jennifer just informed me they actually have the wrong moderator. I had Jennifer down as the moderator, so I apologize. That is my fault. So I will leave it to our new moderator <laughs> that will actually hopefully provide the introductions Hello. for those that have not been on the stage in the past um, and walk us through that. Thank you very much. Good to see you too, Kurt. Okay. Hello, everyone. Thank you for sticking through lunch. Uh, I think there's some good dessert back there too. I just hit maybe one of each of them and just take a half bite of each one. That's always my strategy. Um, and um, thank you, uh, Catherine. Of course, yeah, I did want to share, make sure everybody else gets a shot too. Um, so uh, like she said, I, I think Jeff, you've been introduced to me a couple of times as you as well, Jennifer. Um, to my left is Dr. Judy Hung. Uh, she is a cardiologist and the director of the trial innovation unit within the division of clinical research at Mass General. And then we have Kurt Walhuter, who is the Vice President of Research Innovation and Business Services for the Aurora Research Institute in Milwaukee, okay? So um, before we get started, I wanted to share with everybody a few stats. Right, this is cold, hard facts. These are statistics that either uh, my company's been able to find out over the years or we've worked with Ken Getz over at Tufts in order to find out that, um, and you might have heard these in the past, but. Uh, they really paint a good picture and a backdrop for what we're going to talk about today. And uh, the first one is 90% of physicians, when asked, considered themselves somewhat or very comfortable when it comes to talking to their patients about clinical research. All right? So 90% of them think that they can talk to their patients comfortably about clinical research. And then 72% of American patients say they are likely to, to join a clinical, a clinical trial if they learn about it from their doctor. So 72% of us are ready, willing, and able if our doctor recommended it to us, right? And then 70 78% of patients that are referred to a clinical trial by their doctor actually are accepted by the, by the researcher uh, for participation. They go through the consent process, right? So you take those all into account and realize that only 0.2% of doctors right now are actively referring patients to clinical trials. So 0.2% with all of those numbers that uh, are so big and overwhelmingly positive about patients wanting to learn about clinical research from someone that they know and trust, and yet it just doesn't happen. Um, that's, that's just really amazing to me. So uh, what we're going to do today 
We're obviously talking about ways to get physicians more engaged. How do we work with them? How do we create ways for those patients uh, to learn about research from their doctors? And so um, maybe I can start with you, Kurt, okay? So kind of from a 30,000-foot 30, level, tell us what you guys are doing uh, regarding like, infrastructure, gaining buy-in from physicians, and ultimately contacting patients about clinical research. Sure. Um, so I'm Kurt Waldhuter. I'm with uh, Aurora Research Institute. We're actually part of Aurora Healthcare, which is uh, located in Wisconsin. Um, we have about 1.2 million unique patients, and we just merged last week with advocates, and so now we have 3.5 million unique patients. Congratulations. I think. Congratulations, yeah, right? Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a centralized research function at uh, Aurora. We do about 320 clinical trials we had opened. Um, we have opened last year in 2017. Um, we have about 80 employees. About 55% of our research budget is, is around uh, clinical trials. So we have about 80 people full-time, including coordinators, regulatory specialists, and then another five or six in my group that does all the research billing, contracting, and budgeting. Um, we select studies through um, committees uh, aligned with our three service line, major service lines, which is cardio, neuro, and onc. Um, neuro doesn't really have a committee yet, but cardio and, and onc do. Um, so we're working this year on some um, standardized processes for how we select it. I like, um, Jeff, what you were talking about in terms of weighting the physician's input because I think historically it was really driven by what the doctors wanted to do. Um, kind of like a fringe benefit in some ways to what they wanted. But um, I think the physicians that are coming in uh, today are really looking and think of clinical trials as, as the way that they practice medicine. So um, that's, uh, I think, uh, a really exciting thing. So we're looking at ways to centralize. We have it centralized, but the criteria that we approve our trials with, it's, there's not an endless bandwidth to do everything, so it is about a, building a portfolio approach to that making sure that we are um, really filling in where there's gaps in practice or areas that we're really good at and making sure we don't open up two trials that do the same thing and, and all of that. Yeah, sure. We find it takes us, um, you know, cost eight to $10,000 to open up a study with contracting and regulatory and everything else. So we don't get reimbursed anywhere close to that to do that. So when we open up studies and aren't good at them, it costs us a lot of money. Um, I think a couple of things that make us unique, I have a research analytics group, so we do a lot on feasibility up front on studies um, to look at if we have patients, and then we have the ability to put together eligibility reports using EPIC and work with other folks um, to have eligibility reports that can go to our coordinators and let them know where, where the patients are so they can intersect them, whether they're going into our interventional lab or into the clinic or into the hospital or wherever they might be. So um, those coordinators will oftentimes, if it's within the CV department will call those patients directly if it's outside that and we find them then they'll usually have a doctor to doctor kind of discussion and then the coordinator can call the patients. Um, physician buy-in, um, uh, I think uh, like I said it's a lot of physicians come and just want to do it as part of their practice. I think the other part of that is physician compensation. Um, so we used to have PI supervision fees but then our whole accounting system wouldn't really support how we pay the physicians and they didn't see it on their checks and they didn't know that they were still getting paid standard of care under the RVU model so it was really messy so we've been working for a long time well six months and we'll finish it off soon on a physician compensation policy that'll include um, PI supervision fees again and we're going to split some of those PI supervision fees to um, 
be able to provide buy some, buy some protected time from our physicians that want to do research. And, um, and then the other portion of it, you know, would go back to the physician. In some cases, we'd buy out some physician time um, to do the research, then 100% of their PI supervision fees would fall into that bucket. So um, that's an important thing that we're going to finish up this year, and I think that's going to be, allow us to um, take physicians that really want to be uh, busy PIs and, and able to purchase some of their time. I'm probably taking too much time here. Um, Let's take it off the back end. <laughs> take it off the back end. <laughs> so um, how we get in front of uh, patients, I think, was the other one or how we let other physicians know. Like one of the things that for Aurora, we haven't, research hasn't arrived in terms of its central branding. So we don't tell the community how great we are at doing research as a large, busy health system. Um, but we do have, um, we do get articles out there through our service lines. So for example, our cardiovascular department does about a 20,000 uh, mailing of a news um, uh, newsletter done in glossy, you know, really nicely, and we'll feature research articles in there, and that'll go to all of our different uh, physicians across the organization to allow them, give them some awareness. Um, so I guess I'll stop there so I give other people time. I could probably talk. I, I think it's interesting where you say you don't market directly to patients and let them know that you have research available. No, you guys do that, Wilmington Health, don't you? And I've talked to other organizations too that they say it's a good, it's a good PR thing actually to talk to, to let their patients know, hey, you don't have to go shop around to talk to other physicians. Um, but it just depends on if your organization already has somebody that's doing marketing and they look at this as like, hey, this is one more thing that we can say positive about ourselves. But, all right, so Judy, um, why don't you, that, that same question, um, you know, what are you guys doing regarding infrastructure, getting buying from physicians, and ultimately contacting patients? Sure, Greg. Th thanks for the intro. And um, as a physician and a member of our division of uh, clinical research, <clears throat> Um, I can say that the, the performance and ability to provide uh, clinical research to our provider and patient community is, is one of our core missions. It's an essential mission in our hospital statement. Um, I think the issue that all of us are grappling with is um, how to do this in a more efficient manner. Um, one, because the, clinical tr uh, the number of clinical trials uh, that have become available has increased, and the complexity of clinical trials have also increased. And, but in addition, um, you know, there are increasing demands on making patient care, clinical care, more efficient. So there's time demands on that. So obviously, you don't want to have a five-minute conversation with a patient on trying to enroll for uh, clinical trials, and that's, that's the issue that we deal with. Um, however, I think the, uh, the institution has uh, committed a, a number of resources and invested a number of resources into promoting clinical research, um, specifically, uh, and it, it also to promote it that uh, involves all levels, including sponsors, um, including uh, sort of patient and the provider community as well. Um, one of the sort of specific things we've done is really invested heavily in our electronic infrastructure. So we have developed um, patient, uh, electronic patient portals and websites that connects um, patients to clinical trials. It's sort of like a shopping list for, uh, um, for patients who are interested. Uh, and then we have it the other way where uh, providers um, who uh, have access to patients who have agreed to be contacted uh, because they're interested in patient trials. So that's, that's uh, one where we use the electronic uh, elect uh, system to sort of 
connect uh, the folks. Right. Um, two, we've also developed um, uh, base, uh, actually dedicated medical um, inpatient and outpatient units mm -hmm. uh, for uh, safe and efficient um, uh, trials as well. And uh, one of the um, other things that uh, we've done is to um, be able to search uh, or introduce algorithms to better search our electronic health record uh, to, uh, for inclusion and exclusion criteria sure. to better match these patients. Right. So, um, okay. yeah, okay. David. So, but I mean, that being said, I, I, there's a lot more to do. <laughs> Because I think one of the um, one of the issues is that it still remains a transactional process, in that it's still time out of the clinical care flow to enroll, and it should we definitely need to think of better ways to integrate it, uh, integrate it directly into clinical care, and lots of ideas. Uh, I think I'd be happy to hear ideas from the audience or, or this panel on how to better do that. But that's clearly where, where we need to go. Excellent. Okay, right before I move on to, uh, to Jen and uh, Jeff, I'd like to ask the audience, how, by show of hands please, how many of you have ever heard from your physician proactively about either your ability to participate in a clinical trial or maybe one of your loved ones, someone in your family or maybe even somebody in your close circle? And uh, are you guys the ones that raised their hand? Are you actually seeing someone that's conducting research or were they just a physician that was knowledgeable about what's going on in the community? Yeah, I would like to hear that, please. Perhaps a, a slightly different perspective. I'm from Europe, mm -hmm. and so it's a different um, way in which clinical trials are, un are organized, yeah, and, and your physician is the one who conducts the trial. So sure. it's part of, of the norm. So maybe that's an option as well to go and speak to some people over there, yeah. see how they do it. More like how late-phase studies are done here. Yeah. Okay, great. Anybody else want to share anything about their exposure to clinical trials through their referring physician? Okay. All right, then, Jen, why don't we move on to you? Can you talk to a little bit about how much effort it really takes uh, for an organization to, to kind of to uh, Judy's point, like really work it into the clinical workflow so doctors are aware of what the research is that's going on in their, in their community and just how you keep them up to speed with what's going on? Okay, wow, where to start with this. Um, so let me say, I think, um, I think there's a great opportunity if you are thinking about your institution or your site relationships or your uh, clinical research um, uh, department uh, to think about a little bit of a fresh slate. Um, so I think what's really important at the basis of integration is probably thinking or having maybe more philosophical um, slash business discussions um, at the front end. We laughed a little bit earlier, but literally Jeff and I came together, you know, uh, not on parallel tracks. Um, so I was looking at research from the standpoint of providing a service to a handful of physicians within his practice to reach as many of the patients in the community as possible. It was not an integrated approach. Um, he had uh, other ideas and other priorities in running that organization. So I think the opportunity is, and it's never too late, um, to step back and probably think about it from the standpoint of a discussion about um, how clinical research 
how and where within that institution or practice does clinical research find natural alignment? And um, so it becomes a cultural shift. And you're not having a conversation about a trial, but you're having a conversation about really an alternative care delivery model. And where within that institution is that going to be complementary, not conflicted? In some cases, that might mean that you need to start fresh. So um, over the past several months, I've been talking to um, a, uh, I would say, uh, you know, Ivy League um, academic medical um, center. Clearly, the conversation should not begin in how you're going to go in and disrupt and boil the ocean and change the research relationship. But rather, that conversation began, for example, at the dean's level about population health. And this particular institution is very committed to population health and to personalized medicine. So it's an opportunity to have a different discussion about how that infrastructure looks at the ground level about creating a culture within that organization, big or little, where you are going to bring clinical research um, into the equation, which is multifaceted. I mean, there are educational components to that, the business relationship, um, how physicians are, and providers are going to get paid, and how, how do you build um, all those different elements to not be competitive with, but complementary to. So I think that's a big key. Great. Thank you. Uh, so Jeff, we'll turn to you. Um, so looking at how much money is spent right now uh, in marketing to patients directly to get them to self-diagnose, self-refer, self-present for clinical research, do you feel like that that's being well spent or do you think there could be new compensation models for maybe physicians or money could be directed towards educating physicians so they feel like that this is something that they can truly offer to each and every patient that is potentially protocol eligible? Sure. Um, so let me say, start off by saying, uh, as far as approach goes, I don't think there is one universal approach. So the approach that might work with Jennifer's large Ivy League organization with different drivers and different funding vehicles would be vastly different than the approach that might work for an organization like mine, which is an independent large medical uh, practice who have uh, who has um, very limited additional resources. Um, our, uh, to, our approach would be much different probably and the way we would look at it is first we have to see that it's something that we can sustain so there has to be a financial return to it. Um, I do think that we are dramatically better at cost accounting things than say some of the academic institutions. Jennifer mentioned that I think or somebody mentioned that earlier. And so first we have to make sure that it's something we can actually do and sustain. And next, the next thing that we look at is, is this going to have a benefit to the patients? Um, and how are we going to fairly compensate our providers to do it? All right, so to, now back to the question. No, as I mentioned earlier, I feel like the dollars pointed towards um, uh, the consumer side are probably s somewhat wasted um, when, when as 
Um, Greg mentioned that you know the the issue isn't whether or not the patients are willing to do it; it's whether or not their providers are willing to recommend it and be educated themselves. So I think that that uh, again it's kind of repetitive, but that's where a large emphasis needs to be placed. And I mentioned some comments earlier about there's enough money in the system there is, uh, but it needs to be reshaped. And so in the conversation to engage physicians. Um, it can't be a conversation if you're going to take a systems approach, as Judy mentioned, which I totally agree with. Um, if you're going to take a systems or organizational approach to it, you've got to bring the whole organization into play. And it's not just the PIs that should get compensated for the work, because truly the other members of the organization who are having the initial conversations, who are having the initial interface or the ongoing relationships with the providers also bear some of that workload to bring the uh, patients into the clinical research setting. And so I, I do believe that compensation models for, um, I, I'll call it co-management, um, for lack of a better term for me, uh, but co-management of the clinical research process should be um, developed. So in Kurt's model where they're, they're talking about using RVUs, um, there needs to be an RVU for the co-management of those patients. Who, who, who is the primary physician that has that primary relationship? And that could be a, a truly a, a primary care physician, or it also might be a specialist. For example, we have a number of our endocrinologists referring patients and sure. co-managing diabetic patients to our research arm. Um, you know, it, the, what I guess the point is. Every system and every culture is different, and the approach needs to be based on where they are on their journey, recognizing the, the trials and tribulations that they have with that journey. Right. Good. All right. Um, so when we start talking about just educating physicians and getting them to talk to patients, to have conversations, sometimes it always doesn't go as well as we plan uh, on paper. Um, I know I was working with uh, Boston Scientific on uh, a new bronchial thermoplasty program they had that took care of about 85% of the symptoms associated uh, with asthma, for severe asthmatics, right? So I had a business associate agreement in place for this doctor, and I was calling their severe asthmatics to tell them to come in and talk, have a consultation. And one of this, this woman thought I was trying to put her on Obama's death panel. Remember when those were like the big thing? <laughs> they scared the heck out of her. I was able to finally calm her down, though, and get her to talk to the physician. That woman now goes around with Boston Scientific and that pulmonologist as a patient advocate explaining how she is so glad that her doctor was actually thinking about her when she wasn't there. Initially, that was not her, her reaction. So um, while you guys are working to put these, um, these programs into place, does anyone else have like a, a story, maybe not quite like that, but a story that you um, specifically that you can share with the audience that they could take away like, okay, that's what they mean by developing this infrastructure. That's what they mean by educating physicians. Does anyone want to share something that's got some, just, uh, some details maybe to it that, uh, that everybody can take away as a learning experience? Share something. I don't know if this is in the realm of things, but um, this partly is why we're so centralized. Is um, it's, it's one word audit. <laughs> um, so um, you know, so we take really seriously our, our research billing compliance, and that's you know was recognized through an internal audit as one of the top areas that we could get dinged. At one point, it was the number two risk factor for all of Aurora's um, things out there across the system. So. 
um, we had to create new policies around that and centralize that and, and pull the uh, pull the research billing function out of our revenue cycle and bring it into research where it became less of a clerical function and a lot more of a of a professional function in terms of understanding you know what components make up a clinical trial because you know we had situations where the contrast agent would get billed one way and the CT scan would get billed another because someone looking at it didn't know how to bifurcate or consolidate some of the things on the bills so um, I guess that was one one of the things that um, I just leave out there is that you know that's really pushed the buttons in terms of creating a lot of centralization and uh, and is a big driver right. to, to our to our quality and compliance. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so another experience, um, which was fascinating. So this was um, during my tenure at PMG Research. I was the CEO of PMG Research Integrated Site Network for a number of years until um, just about a year ago. Uh, but a few years ago, we had had we had an established relationship with a physician practice that had been very successful and had worked with that group, small group of doctors, but um, had worked with that group for a number of years. Uh, they were acquired, their practice was acquired by a larger healthcare system. We felt as though, we being a clinical research company, we felt as though the right thing to do was to be integrated, the relationship, the research relationship needed to be integrated uh, to the new employer not uh, directly to the physicians. And so we started that process with the large healthcare system. This point about compensation, I'm telling you, I, I know I'm, I'm, I keep bringing it up, but it's a real issue. And so what happened was we had, in our case, a revenue share model. So um, full service clinical research offering, coordinators, uh, regulatory, um, you know, whole infrastructure in place to try to streamline it, make it as easy as possible for physicians to be physicians and to be able to integrate clinical research right into the normal course of their day. Um, in this revenue share model that we had that was fee-for-service that, you know, came right from the pharma model, um, it had been a high-value proposition for these physicians for years. They were still able to maintain a full, vibrant practice yet they were also to, uh, able to you know, scale their clinical research offering. As part of the healthcare system um, that followed the RVU um, process, when we translated, when we had to go through the process of translating the fee-for-service to the RVU, which by the way took a billing company, we had to hire a billing company to come in, and took about a month for them to sort out basically time-driven activity-based costing understanding of the process. What happened was that translated, because, because we don't have the right um, linkage between clinical trial services and mainstay healthcare, when, when you actually boiled everything down in that RVU model, those physicians were gonna receive 20% of what they had been paid. That clearly is a, is, is a no-go. Yeah, that would be a no-go. That's yeah. a no-go. Right. And, um, yeah. Judy, would you like to share something? I just wanted to provide some comments more as a provider um, and uh, thinking about how to, uh, to talking to patients about clinical trials. And there are a few barriers that uh, one is the, certainly the compensation issue, because it's time. 
15 minutes, and if your compensation is RVU, it's time. And so we have to work that out. I think there is a way to work it out, though, because I, I think there should be a redistribution or some kind of cost sharing because, you know, it's, it's the PI of that trial. It's to their benefit to enroll their patients. And if there's a redistribution of the fee or, or you know, from the sponsor, I think it's a win-win situation for everybody. So that's number one. Um, number two, in terms of, you know, I think it's true that patients um, always want to hear about the trial from the provi their provider that they've established a trust with. But the other issue, though, is that uh, sometimes, the, or a lot of times, the provider doesn't really know the trial that well, right? I mean, so to really answer the questions about exclusion, exclusion, what is the benefit, but all the patients really want is a buy-in, is, is something to, for their provider saying, you know, I don't know that much about the trial, but I, I know the PI and I know that, you know, that could be a good fit for what you have. I mean, some, some kind of buy-in and that's all they need. So we're not, then, then it gets to the coordinator or the PI. So that is, you know, less of a long conversation than you think might, might be needed for the recruitment part. So um, anyway, so those are just two points that I wanted to say. It's not always, um, it's the fact that the providers don't always know about the trial themselves that well. And, it, and there's also the compensation issue. So r real quick. Yeah, please. This, no, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, this issue of RVUs has come up a, a few times. Most of you, if you're not providers, don't really know what that is. Um, but it, it, you could kind of associate it with, you know, when you go get your brakes changed, there's a certain work value to a brake job, and that, that's how they base their, um, that's how they base the, the cost of the, the brake job. So similar here. but. I don't understand for the life of me why systems try to convert things that don't have an RVU assigned already to an RVU. It's sort of like converting the metric system to the English system. Like, why bother? They're, they're, it's a different measurement system. Um, and so for organizations like ours, um, we recommend that for clinical research, you don't convert it. You just, you, you allow the investigators to receive the compensation that comes in less organizational overhead rate of a percentage, but not convert it into the RVU system itself. Um, and if they're on a collections-based system still, which is rare, then it, it just kind of flows through with the, the typical overhead attached to it. Um, but I, I have had lots of conversations around uh, surprisingly, shockingly so, that one of the barriers to implementing clinical research isn't the fact that they um, believe in clinical research as a care option, but they can't figure out how to pay people. Uh, you, you too? Yes. Yeah. Th that, isn't that the craziest thing? It's not even a question of whether the money's enough. It's like, what's the mechanism to pay them? Well, we got to do this English metric conversion. How do we do that? Um, and it feels like of all of the problems that we have, this one shouldn't be as big of as, as it is, but it really, really is. There's also just one comment, the educational side of it is because in the RVU model, which we're in, um, you know, the patients are, I mean, the, the, the physician is getting paid the same as they normally would for everything that's standard of care, but they don't realize that. So yeah. they think they're not getting paid anything. They don't believe it. They don't yeah. see it on their yeah. paycheck separately. So, you know, that's a big educational thing that, that, we need, that we need to work on with our physicians to let them know you actually are getting paid for everything you're doing that's standard of care. 
and then we're using the PI supervision fee is what we were going to be trying to use for and kind of reinstate that in our budget process with sponsors and take a portion of that to be able to buy out some of that time um, for the physician right. what we, or pay them it back. What we do and what we recommend to our partners on that particular issue, because you're right, if, if the physicians can't see it, it didn't happen. Yeah, exactly. So what we suggest they do is carve out a, a different category on the uh, compensation sheets that the physicians review. We call it outside income. Other groups call it you know, other services or what have you, so that they could see that, the, that that work actually is valued and is not simply dumped into their RVU. I know, I and mean, then it all comes down to really silly things, like does the payroll system allow you to show that on their check? <laughs> Which right. we changed payroll systems, so that little item went away, and yeah. you know, then they're not getting do, paid. Do, you know. do, do they get a re reconciliation? We, we could talk about this offline, but it's a physician comp thing. It's probably not really. Okay, well, as our time begins to wind down, I'd like to uh, start with you, Judy, um, and then I want to ask each of you, um, Two things. Um, one, what do you think next year? Like um, Jennifer mentioned, that we're such a small tribe, right? And every year, for the past few years, we keep getting a little bigger and a little bigger. And you know, the true definition of a tribe—that's what we call ourselves in my company. Um, not a team, but we're a tribe because we we depend on each other. We live and breathe because of each other's efforts. And we go out into the world and we try to um, either create value or bring value back into our organization. So um, I, I like that term. I think that's really good. So do you think, um, I'll start with you, Judy. So next year, what do you think this tribe will be talking about? Is there, what new trend um, do you think that we'll start to see? So what you guys think about that? Um, and then also what would your call to action be for, uh, for the, us as a, as a tribe? Um. I don't know about next year. I don't know about timing, but I just sort of see what I'd like to see coming, um, moving forward uh, for clinical research is I think there's a big disconnection between the number of trials out there and then connecting them to the right patients. I'd like to see the, the, a better match. We need a match service for, uh, for clinical trials and, and patients because there's a great need on the patient's part and there's a lot of great trials. That, and a lot of the trials die because they can't enroll. Um, not because they're bad trials, but they just can't, they don't, you know, can't enroll the right patients. So I'd like to see better of that. Um, another uh, important issue that I'd like to see and that we certainly as a big academic medical center can do much better at is to um, have better outreach and connection to the community um, and not think of ourselves as the mecca or have as much of a mecca mentality come to us. But let's go to you guys. For me, I think it's um, I think it's culture. I think it's a patient-first, patient-centered culture in that um, everybody and that's going to lead to a, a shared sense of urgency. So everybody's trying to do their job really well in healthcare and clinical trials. And someone said before we could probably make more if we did something else. Um, but and my kids think, gosh. Daddy's all miserable because he works all the time, but I tired to tell him. But, but I'm actually helping patients at the end of the day, so that's a good thing. Yep. So everyone's trying really hard, but there's different silos along the process, even internal to to Aurora. And then, you know, as you're trying to work through across the continuum of, of thing with with your sponsor, you know, a shared sense of urgency about about redlining and getting the contract back to you, a shared sense of urgency 
about you know making sure that the regulatory folks are working with the budgeting and the contracting folks and sharing the information and who owns that along the way to make sure it keeps getting pushed and driven hard because everyone's working really hard but they're kind of working little silos so and part of that is due to you know how they measure themselves so within Aurora it might have sounded like everything's perfect but it's it's really not but you know um, so I have a budgeting a contracting a billing group and you know we're driven by finance legal and compliance right. and on the other side of that you know there's 80 coordinators and regulatory specialists that are working really close with the docs and the coordinators and everything else and they're driven by what the doctor wants and they're two different worlds so my whole group ends up being looked at like just another stupid legal office in the way can't you just sign that agreement it doesn't matter how good of a job we did we still suck and so and so I'm trying to break that down by having it be about one team and one shared sense of purpose so that and so I'm doing that by getting working groups together and we have a really good strategic plan to develop this shared sense of urgency and we're going to take people from both sides and put them in the room at the staff level and have them figure that out and report that back up and out so hopefully that's one of the things that definitely is uh on my list. Okay, Jeff, you wanna, do you want to add something and then we'll let Jennifer have the last word? Yeah, I'd say, um, so for the pharma-facing folks out there, which most of you guys are, um, I'd say over, maybe not next year, I agree with you, I don't know the timeline here, but over the next five years, I think things are going to get remarkably better on the, these, this trial front. I think that the days of the mom-and-pop site are numbered. Uh, I think that high-performing organizations are going to latch on to this and recognize that it is part of the care continuum and should be part of it. And because of that, they're going to be driving outcomes and quality, not only for the patients, but also for the trial process itself. And, and I believe that at some point, pharma will get to pick and choose amongst really, really high-performing uh, not individual sites, but networks of sites. Much different than it is today, and my guess is that's four to five years. Thank you. Jennifer? And I guess I would just add, um, as much as I would like to think that this group and, and a room like this would be filled to capacity this time next year, um, because I think sometimes that is our tendency as an industry. It, you know, it's about big numbers, you know, lots of trials, lots of doctors, uh, lots of patients. Um, I think to me, my hope would be that we become more focused and we actually um, start seeing deliverables really come from this. So my hope would be we've heard a lot um, about the success from Jeff's organization. My hope would be that Jeff is, is using his resources and his platform um, to have other healthcare leaders like Jeff um, actually sharing their story of, of what this has really meant. And I think that, you know, we can accelerate that by keeping focus um, on doing things better. What does it look like in a healthcare system? I mean, we can talk about the whole U.S., we can talk about the whole world. But it's not insignificant if you're the leader of a healthcare organization like Kurt, um, that you are reaching three million people. I mean, what does that look like if you are reaching even half of one percent? I mean, half of one percent is a big number, right? 
15,000 15, clinical trial participants coming from one organization. And then, um, you know, I think the focus on being sure that you are working with and aligning and collaborating with other people in this room that can help you rather than building it on your own or buying it wherever you can borrow it um, and just keeping focus. Thank you. Uh, does anyone have, uh, we went a little over time, so for the sake of getting back on schedule, does anyone have a question that they'd like to ask us now? Or if, um, if not, then please approach us later. We're all going to hang out around for at least a few more hours until we wrap up, and we'll be happy to, to answer any questions you guys have. Okay? Thank you, panel. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. The 2019 Integrating Clinical Research into Clinical Care, otherwise known as CRACO, will take place April 29th and 30th at the Sheraton in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org and again, theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.